Please turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're looking at the promises of God tonight. Promises of God. And I'll read from verse 13 in Romans chapter 4. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith, that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So far in our study of the epistle to the Romans, the overriding consideration has been the righteousness of God. In the first three chapters it can be seen that we are all under sin and that there is none righteous, no, not one. As guilty sinners, we can never be justified by our own works of the law. As it is written in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, all our works are stained through with sin. The law is all about your duty to love God with your whole being and to love your neighbour as yourself. None of us can legitimately claim to have fulfilled those perfectly reasonable requirements. As such, far from justifying you, the law exposes your guilt. The good news is that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law's demands in life and in his, and in death and his righteousness is imputed to all who believe in him. As it is written in chapter 3 verse 20 through to 24, let's have a look at those verses again. Chapter 3 verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the righteousness of God is revealed in the scriptures. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely, not as some kind of reward because you've fulfilled the law's demands. In chapter 4, which we started looking at last week, the Apostle Paul presented Abraham as an example of someone who was justified not by works, but by faith. In other words, the righteousness of God was imputed to Abraham 
because he believed God. As such, his righteousness is referred to as the righteousness of faith in chapter 4, verse 11 and 13. The righteousness of faith because it is a righteousness that is imputed by faith or through faith as opposed to works. I'm aware that I've been harping on about being justified by grace alone through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for a good number of weeks now. But so did the Apostle Paul. Harp on about it. Why would that be? Could it be because it is a hugely important subject? It's massive. The righteousness of God. Even so, it is a doctrine that falls on the deaf ears of quite literally billions of people throughout the world who are on their way to hell as they foolishly imagine that God will accept them into his kingdom because of what they imagine to be their um, good works. How many people do you know, and maybe there's some in here now, who imagine, well, if there is a God, he's going to accept me because I'm not actually that bad. They are far worse than me. You can think that all you like, but we've seen very clearly that we have all sinned. We all come short of the glory of God. And Abraham was presented, it wasn't just some random selection here. The Apostle Paul presents Abraham, a man of God, to us in chapter 4. Someone who was held in high esteem by the Jews and indeed people who aren't Jews. Muslims, for example. A great man of God. But even he was not justified by his works, but by faith. People need to understand that. The thing is, billions of people. Think about Islam, for example. Nearly two billion people, apparently, are Muslims in this world. They follow a religion of works. And it's and Paul has said very clearly, and I trust I've been saying very clearly over the weeks, perhaps months now, that we are justified by faith and faith alone. It's not that complicated. Coming now to our passage, let's have a look at chapter 4, verse 13 through to 15. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. A promise was given by God to Abraham. It was not given to him because of his obedience to the law of Moses. And that can be clearly seen both in the New Testament and the Old. For example, again, just like all of us, Abraham was under sin. As it is written, we've just seen it. In chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, 
He says that the law was given to Moses and the Israelites 430 years after the promises were given to Abraham by God. The giving of the promise takes us back in time to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, when, as we saw earlier, the word of God came to Abraham and he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord. There's the faith. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Can you imagine that now? The word of the Lord, as I say, I, I, I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ, but any, the Lord took Abraham, look up to the sky at night. And if he was in the desert, well, I've got an idea what that would have been like when I was in the middle of the desert in India one evening and I looked up, looked up to the sky. And I tell you, God's firework display, it was amazing. One of the most amazing sights I've ever seen in my life. Stars everywhere. We see the stars on a clear night here, but nothing compared to what I saw in the middle of the desert, just looking up at the sky at night. And the word of God said to Abraham, look at those stars up there, count them if you can, so shall your seed be. The promise was given to Abraham there. He believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. As to what the promise of God to Abraham actually was, well, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, the Lord said to him, I will make of thee a great nation, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 through to 17, the Lord said to him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where where thou art, northward and southward, and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. That's a lot, isn't it? The dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 through to 21, the Lord said to him, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, the Jebusites, And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, the Lord said to Abraham, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. 
putting all of those passages together, it can be seen that the promise to Abraham and his descendants according to the flesh, his earthly descendants, the Israelites, was the possession of the land of Canaan, a piece of land in the Middle East. Sure enough, 430 years later, Israel, having been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, having wandered around the the wilderness for 40 long years, they took possession of Canaan, the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. However, even though the promise of God was to Abraham and his seed, Abraham never took possession of the earthly promise of the land of Canaan. He was long gone by then. When Israel took possession of the land of Canaan, that again, that was 430 odd years after the promise was given to Abraham. He was dead and gone by then. Did God break his promise to Abraham? Not at all. Canaan was nothing more than an emblem of an infinitely greater promise, a heavenly promise. Abraham understood that very well. Consequently, he looked above and beyond the earthly Canaan to a heavenly one. As it is written of Abraham in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, Verses 9 through to 16. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, the earthly Canaan, as as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, a heavenly Canaan. Abraham was looking heavenwards. The heavenly fulfilment of the promise to Abraham is explained in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, where Paul said in chapter 3 and verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. What that means is that the promise that was given to Abraham and his seed has its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. In other words, you could be a circumcised Jew or an uncircumcised Gentile in fact. It doesn't matter who you are. What does matter is being in Christ. In other words, believing his word 
and trusting in him alone for your salvation from sin and for your righteousness before God. If that really is you, then you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Never mind the earthly descendant, the descendant according to the flesh. You are a spiritual descendant of Abraham if you are a born again Christian. And you are an heir of the promise that was given to him. That is something that the Jews who who vainly claimed Abraham as their father and God as their father but were not trusting in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their saviour from sin, needed to know. Such as the Pharisees. They needed to know that. In John chapter 8, verse 33, they said to Jesus, We be Abraham's seed, which granted they were, according to the flesh. However, Jesus said to them, I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word have no place in you. Ye are of your father, the devil. Can you imagine that? Those religious Jews claiming Abraham as their father and not stopping there, claiming God as their father. And then Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. That must have really hurt them to hear that. Ye are of your father the devil. Maybe I'm being a little bit unfair, but it seems to me that more than a few Christians who really do have Abraham as their spiritual father and God as their heavenly father do not live the rest of their time in the flesh as people who really are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ according to the promise that was given to Abraham. I say that because... Having confessed Jesus as their saviour from sin, nothing seems to change in what I would say are more than a few Christians. With them, nothing changes apart from them going to church on Sundays and perhaps attending the midweek meeting, provided that it doesn't clash with other things. There seems to be an awful lot of Christians who appear to be more concerned with building themselves empires and laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal rather than laying up treasures in heaven. And then there are more than a few Christians who allow themselves to be driven to despair by all the wickedness that is going on in this wicked, fallen world. I'm always going on about the evil in this world. But it should not drive you to despair if you are 
an heir, if you are a, a if you can if you're a spiritual descendant of Abraham and an heir according to the promise of God granted you'll expect Christians to bewail the rebellion against God against his holy laws and against the widespread acceptance of abortion, homosexuality and various other forms of sexual immorality. You'd expect Christians to bewail those things. You'd expect rivers of waters to run down the eyes of Christians because people do not keep God's laws. You'd also expect Christians to bewail their own sins of commission, their own sins of omission, like the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am, he said. You'd expect that from Christians when they keep not the laws of their heavenly Father. However, what happens is that there are Christians who are so ensnared in the allurements of this wicked world, or they are so busy lamenting the wickedness of the, in the world and in themselves that they lose sight of the promises of God. That have their yea and their amen in the great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. It really does seem to me that so many Christians, you know, they, they, they'll give a testimony of how God saved them, how Jesus is their saviour from sin, how Jesus laid down his life on the cross for them, and praise God for all of that. If that is your testimony, then you are truly blessed. You really are. But it never seems to go beyond that, to the promises. And it should do. There should be an excitement if I may use that word, concerning the promises of God. As a Christian, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. What? The spirit of promise. An earnest or a deposit of those great promises that we have in God, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, you... you I don't know if this is... I would say that really, even though we're in this wicked world and we suffer like everyone else, you have one foot in heaven already as a Christian. That's how certain it is. And yet that never seems to come out in testimonies. When you listen to Christians, what they have in Jesus. Jesus gives everlasting life. That in itself, when you think upon that statement, everlasting life, that you have it right now, that should take you to heaven in your thoughts, to eternity. Wonderful. Or at least it ought to be. So, how should you, as a Christian, live the rest of your time in the flesh? For one thing, you can take a leaf out of Abraham's book, your whole attitude of mind ought to be one of you being a stranger and a pilgrim in the world, desiring a better country that is heavenly, looking for a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
That's what you're looking for. Draw on the riches of God's grace and the enabling of the Holy Spirit to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world as what? As you look forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you that he might redeem you from all iniquity. And think upon the glorious truth that when Jesus comes again in his glory, he will say to you, whose faith is evidence now in your born again life, he will say to you when he comes again, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I say that again, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As a Christian, you are the seed of Abraham and you are an heir according to the promise of God. Even so, do you, do you add your amen to the words of the apostle Peter, who in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through to 13 said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, speaking about the world as it is now, dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? Do you hasten the day of God, the coming of Jesus? Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, the promise of God, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what I'm looking for. What about you? New heavens, a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. As someone who has shown repentance towards God and faith in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have every reason to look above and beyond the things of this sad old world as you lay lay claim to the words of the hymn writer who said, standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the spirit sword, standing on the promises of God. Amen.